Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the story of football's first superstar. This is a story of a boy miner who became a global celebrity. The story of a man with as much skill as almost any footballer who came after him in the 20th century. This is a story of a man who dedicated his life to the improvement of players' rights. This is a story of Billy Meredith, and you're listening to United Through Time. You know, he was the first superstar. I think there's so many parallels between him and Ronaldo. Billy Meredith is genuinely one of the greatest names in football. Almost a century after his final game for Manchester United and Wales, he is still regarded as one of the best players to feature for club and country. When Meredith made his final appearance for Manchester City, yeah, we'll get on to that, he was only four months shy of his 50th, yes, 50th birthday. In a career spanning across a quite ridiculous four decades, Meredith had won the FA Cup with both United and City, played more than 300 games for both clubs and had been banned for bribery. His career, and his career took up most of his life, is one filled with the most brilliant stories. He is the subject of episode 6 of United Through Time and concludes our first series, The Formative Figures of Manchester United. United Through Time is a podcast delving into the history of Manchester United with extensive original research, thorough interviews and immersive documentaries. Going in chronological order, the podcast looks at the most influential individuals from Newton Heath to Manchester United. I'm your host, Harry Robinson, a Manchester United fan, historian and freelance journalist. And joining me on this episode of United Through Time is a whole host of excellent guests, some of whom you have heard from before and some newer faces. I'll introduce them all as you hear from them. It's time to get stuck in, but if you enjoy this show, you can support it in one of three ways. By sharing it with your mates, number one, number two, leaving a review on iTunes, or number three, by becoming a patron. For details, go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support. Now, let's actually get stuck in with episode six, Billy Meredith. By far, the most important figure connected with both Manchester teams, really, uh, you know, for what he's achieved at both teams. You know, Busby played for City and achieved so much success as a manager at United. Kiddo achieved a great deal at both clubs, but Meredith was the first to do it for both clubs and basically made both those clubs, through through his playing, made both those clubs attractive clubs to watch, popular clubs and clubs that, well, became established as, as part of 
you know, the, the sort of hierarchy in football. That was Gary James, the author of The Emergence of Footballing Cultures in Manchester, 1840 to 1919, and honorary research fellow at De Montfort University. Billy Meredith is just one of those people, one of those people who is unerringly fascinating. He was football's first superstar, and in an era where a world war had never been heard of before, Billy Meredith was a name known across the European continent, not just England. No, I used to liken him to George Best in the sense that he was a global superstar in the sense that he was probably the most famous footballer in the world. That was John Harding, who wrote brilliantly the biography of Billy Meredith, football wizard. And yet Meredith wasn't completely like George Best. He fought throughout his life for the improvement of footballers' rights to a good wage, safe working conditions and family support. He didn't drink, he was fitter than any of his counterparts, he didn't smoke either, and he ran a shop that sold sports equipment where he made his own lotions that helped his muscles recover quicker from games. He played until he was 49. And yet when Saturday comes, Billy is a man of mischief, a great football player, one of the greatest, but a prankster too. He took shoelaces out of boots, took lids off famous trophies and placed them in teammates' pockets. And when the recipient of his latest jest discovered the play, Meredith would be on the other side of the room, laughing. He was an entertainer, and on the pitch, to entertain, he used his skills. Meredith's power of divination often left his opponents as figures of comedy, Percy Young wrote. Off the pitch, he used pranks. He was a hero to the Edwardian working class, an almost otherworldly figure of inspiration. Fans absolutely adored him, not just in Manchester, but across the country, and in Europe too. In newspapers, he would be depicted always in the same way, with a toothpick sticking out of his mouth. Often during games, when the ball was on the other side of the pitch, he turned round and chat to the fans standing near him. He revelled in his fame. On the field, Meredith was the supreme craftsman, utterly devoted to his vocation and indifferent to public praise or blame. His paleness accentuated by his dark moustache, he appeared as something of a melancholic, and his occasional sallies of football wit sardonic, but there was more than the seeing eye, more than showed on the surface. And yet Meredith had almost two characters. In midweek, away from the football pitch, he could be very different. Like all geniuses, he had his quirk. In his shop, he would be a normal person, slightly perturbed by the constant stares through the windows of Mancunians, turning to their mate and saying, That's a great Meredith. He always wore a cap and stuffed his hands in his trouser pockets, like a schoolboy in the village. And he was a fighter, a determined fighter for rights. He fought because he possessed a reluctance to succumb to standard conventions, to be normal and thus to live with exploitation. A great player... A fascinating character. This is a story of Billy Meredith, who, in his own words, was born to play football, you know? I was fortunate. I've interviewed his grandson and I managed to interview, well, briefly interview his daughter, who was 99 when I interviewed her. She died about a year or so later. And she said that it was just football. That's all. Football was everything to him. And he didn't want he didn't want to do anything else. He didn't want to talk about anything else or do anything else. He just wanted to be involved in football. Billy was born in Chirk in 1874. Chirk is a small town that lies just outside the English boundary, inside Wales, but on the Shropshire border. It is a true coal mining town, sitting on the River Dee with a gentle valley that stretches south from Wrexham. As Lancashire throbbed with the pulsating beat of industrial growth, Chirk was one of the many, many small towns providing Manchester with the resources it needed to blossom into the heart of the country's industrial revolution. In Chirk, there were two different pits in Billy's era. The first was called Black Park, the second, Bryn Kennelly. 
both sitting just over the brow of the hill to the side of Chirk Town. Billy's grandparents were country people, but his parents, James and Jane, had moved into Chirk in the year that he was born. The legend goes that Billy was born on the way as his parents moved out from Trevenin. Most expected Billy wouldn't survive the rest of the journey, but he was supposedly placed in a warm oven by his grandmother to keep him alive. He was one of ten kids. Meredith's strange arrival into the world would become a regular joke. If you'd only been pushed out a couple of hundred yards later by your mother, you'd be an Englishman. But Billy would always feel undoubtedly Welsh, very much so, particularly in the face of English arrogance. His parents were primitive Methodists who regularly went to the chapel. The Bible was the only book in the house, although bear in mind 20% of the country at this point was still illiterate. The Meredith probably were literate, and Billy would develop into a good speaker at least of some sorts, if not a writer with the prose and touch of Dickens or Kipling. They were a religious family. Billy's brother would go on to become a Salvationist, the first man to wear a Salvation Army uniform in Wigan, actually. The whole family was teetotal, including Billy, even though he would go on to own a pub. His brother, Jim, became a lay preacher who once travelled to the Holy Land. Two of his six sisters became nurses, with religion being their inspiration. Almost everyone in Chirk worked in the pits. Billy would look out the back window of his family house and see relatives and townspeople, miners trudging through the grassy fields, disappearing over the brow of the hill, stepping through the green, and coming into view would be the noisy charcoal black mine with all its business and productivity. There was no sense that this was dirty work, though, or bad work even. Chirk was a proud mining community. Boys were brought up to look forward to joining the crowds of men walking up to Black Park and Brincanelli. It was what he did. All of Meredith's family worked at the Black Park pit when he was still a boy. His brothers eventually moved on, but his father would stay working there as an engine winder until his death. Aged 12, Billy joined the rest of them in the summer of 1886. His first job was unhooking the tubs at the bottom. He needed to be small to do that. It was a risky business, though. The number of kids killed in these mines, not the Chirk ones particularly, but mines across the country, is horrific. It makes you gulp. Children who should have been playing in the fields, getting a good education, enjoying themselves, learning, were mutilated in the most vile way. The stories are endless. A 10-year-old killed in an explosion, an 11-year-old horse driver crushed by his own horse, a 14-year-old driver crushed between the tubs and the door, a 12-year-old trapper crushed by tubs, a 12-year-old driver crushed by a horse that fell, another 12-year-old driver head crushed between tub top and a plank, a 13-year-old trapper head crushed between cage and bunton while riding to bank. One story is particularly tragic. A 7-year-old not employed at the mine, but taking his father's dinner to him from his house run over by wagons as he did so. This was happening all over the country. Billy survived something he shouldn't have had to survive. When he became too big to work in the tubs, he became a pit pony driver, literally guiding the pit ponies. The ponies did a variety of jobs and were treated equally as terribly as all the workers. They'd rarely get to go over ground and quickly became blind or visually impaired due to the lack of light, as well as the heavy loads they spent all day carrying. They'd carry tubs of coal, boxes of tools, supplies, equipment, any repair stuff. The driver, Billy in this case, would direct them and help to collect the tubs, pulling them along the main roadways to the pit's bottom, where they could be taken up to the surface, emptied and sent back down. Billy moved on soon and got stuck into hutching, where he would push the tubs of coal along the lines where the ponies could not go. He later became one of the men firing the boilers at the bottom of the pit, setting his sights on becoming an engineer like his father. He spent eight years working in the pits, from a child to an adult, 
that experience, one which he enjoyed, shaped much of what he was to do in the rest of his life. Workers joining together to produce something more than the sum of its parts. Unions. Black Park Mine, where Billy worked, was a decent setup. It offered reliable employment and Chirk offered some lovely scenery. It was first opened in 1653, this mine, and so was one of the oldest in Wales. Most of the mines in Wales were run by Englishmen, feeding the idea of the dull and miserable Englishman and the Welshman more at one with his traditional surroundings. Again, Billy felt unerringly Welsh. He wasn't really introduced to football, he just played a lot. I'm told that I had not been introduced to the world very long before I began to kick, and I've been kicking ever since, Meredith would later write. Nevertheless, he was a real lover of football from early on. Much of the family was. Away from the pits, the greenness of the Welsh hills gave plenty of space upon which Billy and his mates could kick a ball about. All the Meredith brothers would be involved. Were he interviewed for a 442 cover story or United We Stand, Billy would be asked who helped to get him where he was. And he would be able to give a few answers. First of all, his brother Sam, who paved the way. He left Chirk to become a professional footballer. He was a couple of years older than Billy and went on to play for Stoke and Leighton and won eight caps for Wales. Another brother, the eldest actually, Elias, he worked for the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company. Elias didn't play football much, but he liked it, and his job meant that he could take Sam, Billy and a couple of others across the northwest of England to watch good football. Remember, it was the workers of the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company who created Newton Heath, Manchester United. So Elias would take Billy on the train, and it was a good era of football. One of the first teams he got to see was the Preston Invincibles with their unorthodox winger, Jack Gordon. Billy was 14 in the year that Preston achieved such magnificent success. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Billy was given a genuinely brilliant footballing education. Here's Gwyn Jenkins, author of the Manchester United Welsh. Meredith himself went to the local school where he was heavily influenced by a schoolmaster called T. Thomas, who produced a number of uh, good players, uh, very keen on, on football. And so he was tutored, in effect, by Thomas E. Thomas, the schoolmaster in Chirk, who would also become the first executive president of the Welsh FA. It was no surprise then that it was not only Billy who became a footballer out of the Chirk ranks, but Di and Lot Jones as well, and Charles Morris. Thomas Thomas had a great ability to educate the kids of Chirk without necessarily focusing on academics, because Billy was not an academic. He was ready for life in the coal pits, but Thomas taught him how to utilise his great footballing talent instead. Billy's mother had never been all too keen on football. It ruined her boy's footwear and added to the family expenses, especially since there were ten children. My mother's objection to football as I grew older became even stronger, Meredith would later say. And so Billy played for Chirk. They had a good amateur side. Between 1887 and 1894, they appeared in six Welsh Cup finals and won five of them. Billy was playing in time for the last two and appeared in both. His debut, though, for Chirk was in September 1892, after a couple of years turning out for the reserves. It was a turbulent time for the town, at work and at the football. It was the year of a national stoppage over pay demand in the pits. The strike had failed, though. Billy was pleasantly distracted by the football, no doubt. Chirk played in the Combination League, a semi-professional competition where they'd come up against reserve sides from Everton and Aston Villa, as well as teams like Mactown and Gorton Villa. His name started to become quite well known, especially for his powerful shot and soon for his dribbling skill as well. One newspaper wrote after a 10-1 win, Chirk have one of the best forwards in the district. He was only 18. Another miners' strike forced Chirk to drop out of the combination, 
The strike just simply meant they couldn't travel with any ease and couldn't afford wages, with the small attendances now happening. Northwich Victoria, on the other hand, could pay expenses and give a few shillings here and there, so Billy played intermittently for them, Chirk and Wrexham. But that, that mining thing obviously stood him in quite good stead because he'd actually come into professional football because of a miners' strike, because he was working down the pits, playing as an amateur. This is Colin Savage now, City fan and writer for King of the Kipax, on Twitter, at Presswich Blue. Uh, the miners went on strike and they were only getting four old pence a day from the relief fund. And um, Northwich Victoria offered him uh, a gig playing at weekends and he could earn 10 shillings a game plus his expenses. So um, that, that was quite a boost for him. That's, that's how he came to be come to the notice of um, quite a few other clubs because of that strike. So, so kind of unionism, um, trade unionism was, was in his blood, really. After the strike, Billy returned to play for Chirk mainly, who reached the last four of the Welsh Cup and the FA Amateur Cup. In typically stupid fashion for the time, the Welsh lads were forced to play both games on the same day. They put their best team out for the Welsh Cup and a slightly reserved side for the Amateur Cup and won the Welsh Cup in 1894, beating Westminster Rovers 2-0. Billy definitely had some doubts about playing football full-time, or professionally at least. His mother was part of the reason. She really did hate it. My mother thinks of other things beside money. Our boys are happy and healthy, satisfied with their work and innocent amusements. You gentlemen come and put all kinds of ideas in their heads. She was referring to the administrators at Manchester City in later years. You tell them they can get more money for play than they can hard but honest work. If Billy takes my advice, he will stick to his work and play football for his own amusement when work is finished. He didn't really want to leave his occupation to become a footballer. I mean, that's pretty well established. You know, he 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 was content enough as a, as a coal miner living locally amongst the, you know, his friends and family. That was Mark Metcalf, author of Manchester United, the first halcyon years, 1907 to 1911. Billy's mother's words would have had an impact on his own thinking. His dad, meanwhile, James, had no interest in football at all. He only went to watch Billy once throughout his son's famous 25-year career. He never intervened, though. Between proper matches, Meredith would play in a -a five-a-side team at the Black Park Colliery, where he worked. It was made up of five Welsh international players. Him, Owen, James, Williams and Roberts. The Owen was William Owen, who mentored Meredith in a way. He was a lot older and had played for Wales and Newton Heath, the forerunner to Manchester United. Owen was one of the men who would act as an advisor to Meredith when he started to attract the attention of bigger clubs. Northwich Victoria were one of England's oldest clubs but had fallen out of the second division. They participated in the Welsh Cup and were always inviting young Welshmen to come and have a go. Upon first viewing Meredith, one of the Northwich men commented, He's too bloody slow for us. They couldn't recognise Meredith's undeniable talent. I'll read a quote from the great book on Meredith by the great John Harding. He fainted and teased, kept the ball attached to his person by invisible bonds and lured unwitting opponents to distraction and destruction, not seeking his end with the crude demonstrations that want easier claim. He was ahead of his time, too much of a showman, not enough of a pacey direct winger. Football does go in cycles, constantly. The older football men found Meredith's style too much, too showy, Many, many decades later, when Meredith was a regular pundit and an old man himself, he would slate the celebrity status of people like Stanley Matthews, forgetting that he himself had been the same and given the same treatment. Meredith only played six matches for Northwich Victoria, and then he went to Manchester City. (laughs) 
Billy had attracted the attention of a fair few clubs with his performances for Chirk. They're no longer a name of any kind as a football club, but they were reaching the finals of the Welsh Cup back then. That's not something to be scorned at, and it meant their players were firmly in the minds of the great teams of the north-west of England. His games for Northwich Victoria were certainly very helpful as well. Bolton wanted to sign Billy Meredith at one point. Di Jones, a Chirk graduate himself, urged his manager at Bolton to sign Meredith. They decided not to, thinking his frame was too slight. The manager at the time was a certain Mr JJ Bentley, who would later be Meredith's boss at United as chairman of the club. He told him in 1894 that he was too young and too light. He relied upon a few people then to get Meredith to Manchester City and into professional football. First, his brother Sam helped him to realise that he should become a professional footballer and not stay as an amateur while he worked in the mines. Second, Pat Finnehan, who Billy played with occasionally at Northwich Victoria, urged City to sign Meredith to fill a gap on the right wing. Lawrence Furness, meanwhile, had spotted Meredith playing for Northwich too in a game against Middlesbrough Ironopolis. Furness had refereed the game between the two sides and saw what Meredith was capable of and recommended him to City's board. William Owen, who I mentioned earlier, helped with some advice as well. And so Meredith signed amateur forms at City in November 1894, but insisted that he would continue to live and work in Chirk in Wales. His plan was to work in the mine throughout the week and then travel to Manchester. City arranged lodging for him in a house on Close Street to have at the weekend. They were relatively new as a club, and they discovered him thanks to these many recommendations. City, when they when they kind of spun off out of Ardwick FC in 1894, were quite well financed at the time and um, were seen by clubs, particularly clubs like Aston Villa, who were the aristocracy of the FA, uh, seen as the nouveau riche upstarts. Uh, and, and there was a lot of jealousy about it. His debut was a trial, basically. So originally he joined them as an amateur and his first game was uh, up at Newcastle. And he had to, he left uh, Chirk in Wales, where he lived, at 2am on the Saturday morning of the game. Had an 11-hour journey to arrive in Newcastle. Uh, played the game and had an 11-12 hour journey back and got back something like 12.30 um, uh, on the Sunday or something like that. So, you know, ridiculous. The City 11 included W Meredith, an amateur from Chirk who partnered Finnehan on the right wing. Last run and centre by Meredith ended in Sharpless, scoring again for the City. From a grand centre from Meredith, McReady headed past Lowry. City lost the game 5-4, but Meredith had contributed to at least a couple of the goals, if not more, and so he was kept on, only as an amateur, though. Well, well he came from a mining family, of course. Uh, he'd, he'd been down the mines himself, and, and um, he originally signed up with City as an amateur. He didn't want to give up, give up his promising career down the mines because he thought he could get um, an engineering job which was quite highly prized. Meredith would eventually have to leave hopes of an engineering career behind but part of the reason he decided to sign for City is that they had a big engineering works close by in Galloway's, the world famous boiler works. It's likely he worked there for a little bit at least when he first joined City. He was still working the coal mines um, during the week and playing for City at weekend You know, so he was still physically working hard. His first home match, fittingly, as you'll see later, was against Newton Heath, the forerunner to Manchester United. City lost 5-2, but Meredith showed some promise and scored twice to earn a cheer from the home fans. When City had gone to sign Meredith, they'd been faced with some hesitancy from him. The people of Chirk were desperate not to lose Billy from the team or the town. Some have said that the City representatives were chased by local people and ducked in the local pond, as John Harding has written. Others said that they had to disguise themselves, and another story goes that they had to entertain Meredith's work colleagues in the local pub, buy them drinks, before they were allowed to speak to him. 
he was not yet the great Billy Meredith. But let's talk about his style of play. Why was it new? Why was it good? Why did it make him football's first superstar? Here's Gwyn Jenkins, author of the Manchester United Welsh. He was certainly a, a, a winger whose job was uh, in those days, as now really, was to get round the defence and get uh, a good cross in. He wasn't the fastest, but he was he was quick over the short uh, um, uh, time and uh, was very quick getting past the players. His dribbling was outstanding. And he read the game well and he instinctively knew how to beat a tackle. He had a swagger about him. There's no doubt about that. He played out wide and football at this time was a very different landscape in many ways. But to remind you, the formation used by almost every team across the country was a 2-3-5. There would be a goalkeeper, known as a custodian, and then two backs, three half-backs and five forwards. You'd have a centre-forward, the main striker if you like, someone like Billy Gillespie or Knocker West, as you'll hear soon, and then there'd be two inside forwards on the right and left, someone like Sandy Turnbull. They would support the centre-forward, making runs, creating space for their teammates and scoring goals themselves and setting them up often. And then a bit further wide, in an admittedly cramped forward line, there was the wingers, right and left, outside right and outside left. This was Meredith's position on the right. The winger had to have good stamina, of course. They were the widest players on the pitch, with no right back or left back behind them, just space. But their main role was definitely attacking. They would do little defending, but this depended on the character of the player in truth. If City or United needed help in defence, Meredith would certainly be there to help. But generally, wingers weren't expected to track back, and this would be the case until the 1960s, really. Meredith's job then was to stay on the touchline. Really, right on the touchline. Run with the ball, cross it into the box and provide chances for his teammates and occasionally score a goal. He was a forward and he, was, he scored goals and he was brilliant. So you could, you could make the Ronaldo comparisons. Difficult, but at the same time, I can see I can see the, the way in which a modern football fan would, would want to see it in that way. Very quickly, Billy Meredith became the best player in a gradually blossoming Manchester City team who, as we've heard, had a bit of money about them and were a relatively new side. Like Manchester as a city, the team city were changing quickly. In the same year that Meredith signed for the club, Queen Victoria opened the Manchester Ship Canal and ignited decades of rapid, enormous change in Cottonopolis. Meredith did eventually turn professional and became captain of City in his second season in blue. He was captain and top goalscorer at the age of just 21. Captain partly because he was good, but also because he was demanding higher wages than his more senior teammates, and it was a way that City could explain to those senior teammates why they earned less than this Welsh 21-year-old. City finished runners-up in the second division thanks to 13 goals from Billy Meredith. They were catapulted into a playoff match known as a test match then between the people coming down from the first division and the people trying to go up into it. They were beaten, unfortunately, by West Bromwich Albion and Small Heath, both from the Midlands, and failed to go up. In the summer, Billy returned to Chirk and went back to work in the Black Park Colliery. At this point, he was playing every match for Wales. His debut had come in Belfast against Ireland in 1895. The trip over the Irish Sea had made Meredith quite ill, but his team had secured a good 2-2 draw. He played England for the first time a few days after that, and the England side was made entirely of amateur footballers, mainly from the Corinthian team. The war between amateur and professional in the game of football was constant, but the professional was beginning to win. Yeah, he first played for them in, in 1895, as soon as he signed for Manchester City, actually. 
And in those days, of course, the, the only international football was in the British Championship. There, there were some good results, uh, usually against Scotland or, uh, or Ireland, of course, before um, it took a long time for Wales to beat England in those days. Eventually, in 1899, Meredith's Manchester City went up, winning the second division with a six-point gap to their nearest rivals. Billy had scored an incredible 30 league goals to yank them into the top flight after years of trying. In three of his five seasons at the club, he had been the top scorer from the wing. He had made an instant impact at the club even a year after he arrived, when the Athletic News wrote of 21-year-old Billy Meredith that There is no man playing better football in the three kingdoms. Nature has certainly endowed him with advantages above the common. An awkward customer to tackle, slippery as an eel with shooting powers extraordinary. He is a real gem. When City gained promotion to the, uh, what was in the first division, I think it was the end of 1899. So it was the 1899-1900 season, I think they played. Uh, he found it a lot harder because teams realised if you stop Meredith, you stop City. And, uh, but it, it wasn't until they got um, players like um, Sandy Turnbull in. To, to help him out, that they actually did start to build a much better team. The arrival of Sandy Turnbull, amongst others, gave City something else. As Colin Savage says there, opposition teams knew that if they could stop Meredith, City would cause them little trouble. It was a bit of a one-man team. With Turnbull coming, it was a bit different. City's first couple of seasons in the top flight were very respectable. Meredith was top scorer in the first year, and they basically did okay. In 1900, the Blues signed Joe Cassidy from Newton Heath. Cassidy was the best player at Newton Heath, and the railway men only sold him because they were in such dire straits economically. They had little choice. Secretary Alf Albert resigned, and it began a three-year period of serious instability as Newton Heath rocked towards extinction, only to be saved by Harry Stafford and John Henry Davies and turn into Manchester. United. In 1901, while playing in the First Division, Billy married Ellen Negus, his childhood sweetheart. Both from Chirk, they married at St Mark's Church in Close Street in Manchester. They were moved into a simple two-up, two-down by City, and they lived only a short distance from the ground. For City, things were fine until, in their third campaign in the First Division, in 1902 this is, they went back down, finishing 18th despite having some proper talent in the side in Billy Meredith, Joe Cassidy and another forward called Billy Gillespie. Gillespie was one of Meredith's favourites, he said he was one of the best forwards he'd ever played with, but he occasionally missed a game after a night of drinking from which he'd failed to properly sober up. On other occasions, he'd just play a little drunk, and Meredith was the more responsible of the pairing and actually insisted to Gillespie that he take care of some of his wage each week. Meredith would take a cart and hold on to it so Gillespie wouldn't spend it all on drink and gambling. City's club secretary, Sam Omeroyd, resigned and he was replaced by Tom Maley, a later disgraced figure, but the secretary who would become the first man to bring the FA Cup to Manchester. But relegation was a serious matter for City and for Billy Meredith. He personally had had a good season, though not a particularly remarkable one, and by this point he was already the famous Billy Meredith, though his fame was yet to be stoked by the flames of a cup-winning goal. Take this newspaper report, for example. Meredith, as usual, played a brilliant game and put in some really splendid effort. When teams played Meredith, they marked him closely with at least one man and often two or three. 
Billy led a pretty simple life still. He loved playing football and not much else. He stuck to routines with severe discipline. For example, he'd always have a glass of port before a match and a boiled chicken afterwards. Once official training had ended at City, he would go out the back of his house onto the Bellevue track, do some individual work and come back in where his wife Ellen had run a hot steaming bath which helped with his muscle recovery. Sometimes he'd get a massage. It was a privileged life, there's no doubt about that, but his wife, Ellen, and his daughters enjoyed the privileges of money and fame more than Billy did, really, in some senses. In early April, a stand collapsed at Ibrox Park in Glasgow. 25 fans died, 500 were injured. Meredith was selected to play in a Football League 11 that faced a southern side to raise money for the Glasgow Disaster Fund. Alongside him, well, on the other wing, was Steve Bloomer, the other great winger of the era. But there was also some criticism. At Ardwick, City's home ground. We get Meredith at his best, but off the Ardwick soil, the form shows weakening. All throughout the month after relegation, Meredith's future was being considered. He belonged to City. He had been there for seven years, and in this era, football players were very much owned by their clubs. It was a modern form of slavery. On April 26, 1902, the Manchester Evening News wrote about the potential name change of the Newton East Club to Manchester United. Further down the football column, it said, As Meredith is concerned, an interesting proposition has been made by one of the leading clubs. Earlier, it had been whispered in Liverpool that should Manchester City be relegated to the second division, Meredith will be with Everton next season. That was in the Nottingham Evening Post. Elsewhere, the Lancashire Evening Post looked into more detail and suggested a different club. W Meredith is said to have had an inclination to change quarters now that Manchester City have again dropped into the lower circle. And a week or two ago, one heard, in the strictest confidence, that he was a likely recruit for Aston Villa. It is easy to understand any club wanting him, for if he's had not quite as brilliant a season as in other years, it has been through the lack of adequate support. Compare the value of Jimmy Ross as a partner with the worst of the players with whom Meredith has been associated with this winter. Of course, McCoostra has been an improvement on some of the early season partners, but even he has not the skill or the judgment of the Ross of a year or two ago. All the same... One could never fancy Meredith leaving Manchester. Should he ever do so, ere his powers decline, one would like to see him side by side with Bloomer. What a wing they might make. Meredith has declined to all the chores and will stay in Cottonopolis. One Bolton paper insisted and stay in Manchester he did, and down to the second division, City went. Speaking metaphorically, Manchester City's requiem was sung on Sunday. It was a very sad affair, and it will be charitable on the part of one's memory to forget it as soon as possible. In truth, it was an inglorious end to an inglorious season, said the Athletic News. In the summer, Jimmy Ross, who was mentioned just a few moments ago in that Lancashire Evening Post article, who had been Meredith's partner only a couple of years earlier, he died at the age of 36. Ross had been a member of the Preston North End Invincibles team, but despite a very successful career, had been unable to save any money up. Known as the Little Demon, the Scot had been instrumental in setting up the first attempt at a footballers' union in 1898. He caught a cold and complained of facial trouble. This developed into erysipelas and proved fatal on Thursday morning. Jimmy's wife and children were left destitute without any structure of support for them. Meredith, as a personal friend but also a long-time admirer, was left deeply scarred by this news. It would inspire him into action in future years. He and new secretary at City, Tom Maley, led the Blues straight back up into the first division as second division champions. They scored 95 goals, with Meredith contributing 21 of those. Billy Gillespie scored 30, and City went up this time with a three-pronged attack rather than being quite so heavily reliant on their brilliant captain, William Meredith. 
Sandy Turnbull had arrived by this point, a brilliant Scottish centre forward, and things did change. City began to develop into one of the best teams in the country. Here's Mark Metcalf, author of Manchester United, The Halcyon Years. Meredith is, is the star of that team. He's the star of the Manchester City team during that period. He played wide and he was but also a very good goal scorer with either foot, provided uh, substantial amounts of opportunities for other players. Very good at getting the ball over the opposing defence, particularly for uh, Sandy Turnbull to come in and to be on the end of those opportunities. Back in the first division, City were flying. They opened the season with four wins, Meredith scoring two. Their form did drop off a little, but by Christmas, City were one point clear at the very top of the table, having only been promoted the season before. The league was definitely a tight one. Sheffield United, the Wednesday, Villa, Sunderland, Newcastle, Everton, Wolves, They were all possible title winners. But City went unbeaten from New Year's Day until late March. Meredith was scoring regularly and winning the adulation of everyone in the country. He was clearly one of the finest players around, leading the finest team around. It was the FA Cup which was a true aspiration for any great side and in February City opened their cup campaign with a 3-2 win against Sunderland at Hyde Road. Sandy Turnbull scored twice. He scored another away at Woolwich Arsenal in South London and again in the third round against Middlesbrough. On March the 19th, City played the Wednesday in the FA Cup semi-final at Goodison Park. 53,000 were in attendance at the neutral ground in Merseyside. This was the cup, but in the league, these two sides were fighting closely as well. City sat two points behind the Wednesday in second place, but with a game in hand which could draw them level. This time of year now comes in April, really, with the season extended since the early 1900s. That time of year when it's game after game for big clubs competing on all fronts. Think 99 or any of the years between 2007 and 2009 when Ferguson's United team would do battle with Chelsea in the Cup, the league and in Europe too. Meredith City would play the Wednesday on March the 19th in the Cup and then March the 26th in the league, with the two matches helping to decide the only two major trophies in English football. Sheffield Wednesday played most disappointing football against Manchester City and were deservedly beaten by three goals to zero. So marked was the disparity between the two 11s that an onlooker might have been tempted to pronounce Manchester City one of the finest combinations that have qualified for the final tie for a long time past. The Lancashire team showed fine pace in dribbling and were always quicker on the ball than Sheffield, while the accuracy in passing suggested an amount of confidence. All the team worked well, but the hero of the afternoon was certainly William Meredith. Always a fine outside right, Meredith excelled himself on Saturday, Time after time he got by Ruddleston and Burton, thanks to his pace and cleverness, and while most of the centres with which he finished were good, some were truly superb. He did not score a goal, but all three points they mean goals here. registered by Manchester City were mainly his work. The Telegraph went on to detail each of Meredith's actions through the game. I'll share the full version of the original article with our patrons. To find out how to become a patron and support the podcast, go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support. Another paper wrote, England has no one to compare for cleverness, speed or dash with Meredith for outside right. Another said, To court with Meredith was an eye-opener. All three goals came from swinging centres from Meredith, who have probably never played a finer game. The stardom of Billy Meredith was now being scattered across the country. As the England selection committee met to decide their next squad, it was said, Meredith, unfortunately for England was born some hundred yards or so inside the Welsh border. It was a common quip all throughout his career. He certainly would never feel English, though, would he? 
certainly not. No, I think Wales has produced a lot of very good wingers. Um, currently, uh, a young lad called Dan James playing for United. He's very, very quick. Um, and then uh, there's Gareth Bale, of course, and Ryan Giggs. Cliff Jones was a wonderful player for Spurs and, and Wales. And one of my my favourites, uh, Leighton James, who played for Burnley and Wales in the 1970s. So Wales has produced a number of wingers. And when we, when you're asked as as we are often do to pick your greatest ever Welsh team. Well, Meredith has to play, but it does mean that one or two of the others, which I mentioned, <laughs> don't get a game. But although Meredith would probably make the greatest Welsh eleven, he was missing for his country in April 1904 with his focus on Manchester City. The absence of the master dribbler made such a difference to the attack of Wales. He was the one man who could have infused life into the slow and laborious work of the Welsh. No one can fill Meredith's boots. It wasn't actually his choice not to play for Wales. Clubs had all the power over whether their players could be given leave to go and play for their country, something that really irked Billy Meredith. And City hammered Wolves 6-1 with the help of Billy Meredith, but next week they were beaten by Sheffield Wednesday and thus became second favourites for the title, which would eventually fall out of their grasp as they focused their sights on cup glory. This is United Through Time and this is a Manchester United podcast. But it's also important, I think, to celebrate the brilliance of Meredith across his career. More importantly, though, I think it's important to state how significant the success of Manchester City was in 1904 to the city of Manchester. This was a rugby city for many years and it remained so in many parts of town. Though East Manchester, where City and United were both based, had been inspired by people like Billy Meredith already, Cup Glory established Manchester as a footballing city. No team from Manchester had ever even made it to a cup semi-final before. The competition was in its 32nd year when City did so. Their opposition in the final would be Bolton Wanderers. And it was Meredith, his character, his swagger, his style of play, his brilliance, that captured the interest of many who had not previously been hit by the developing football fever. After the first round tie against Sunderland, he was labelled King of the Realm by one reporter. And you've just heard some more clippings from the semi-final. Here's Gary James explaining the Meredith mania a bit more. There was a, an article actually. It was, it was nineteen. It was nineteen oh four. It wasn't long before City City won the cup. And um, Bentley, who also was secretary manager of United for a while, but he was a journalist for um, the Athletic News. Bentley wrote something like um, he was sort of secretly in about Meredith. He said, "I'm expecting any day now." to read the headline that Meredith cut himself shaving this morning and lost two spots of blood. Now, the significance of that, that is it's very similar to the sorts of stuff that people used to tell about like David Beckham, that everything Beckham did was in the papers, was on television and so on. And here we were back, you know, sort of 100 years before, and here's Meredith, everything he did is in the newspapers. You know, he, he, he in later life, um, appeared on stage, he, he um, appeared in films in later life, and he was just a, a major star. About 30,000 Lancastrians headed down to London to watch the 1904 FA Cup final. Prime Minister Arthur Balfour, who was a patron of City and had once kicked off a game at United as well, travelled down with the club. A lot of people, the celebrities that is, went to the game just to see Billy Meredith. He enjoyed the spotlight, and there's no doubt about that. After 23 minutes in the final, he skipped past the defender, moved into the penalty area, stuck the ball past Bolton's goalkeeper Di Davies and wheeled away in celebration. There were no more goals scored, partly because of the great performance of Herbert Burgess, who would later join United. And City had won the All-Lancashire Cup final and brought the trophy to Cottonopolis for the very first time. Meredith, as captain, had lifted the cup 
for Manchester City. They had to go and play a league game at Goodison Park on their way back to Manchester. They lost that and their title push was over, but then they started their triumphant parade home to Manchester. In the Roman Republic, senators and military men who had achieved something of note would be given imperium and a triumph upon their return to Rome. They would march through the gates of Rome with their soldiers behind them, and Pompey the Great tried to do so riding elephants. Unfortunately, they didn't fit through the gates, so he had to get down from his elephant and onto the ground. Still, it was much more magnificent than City's arrival home, where the Manchester Council hadn't really thought of anything. And so the club organised things themselves, and they arrived back in Manchester late evening on the Monday. They moved towards Ardwick via Central Street, the Midland Hotel, Deansgate, Market Street, Oldham Street and Dale Street, and they were greeted by thousands of Mancunians delighted with the win, and it was bigger than anything the city had seen before. The Manchester Evening Chronicle wrote, There is nothing in the annals of football that will compare with the magnificent reception which was accorded the Manchester City football team on the occasion of their return to Manchester last night in the proud position of holders of the English Cup for the first time in Manchester's career. Notwithstanding the lateness of their arrival, the whole population of the city seemed to have turned out to do them honour. When City took a team photo with the cup, Meredith was sat centrally with the cup at his feet. There was no doubt he was the main man. The unifying nature of football can be shown in so many ways, but as City moved through the streets, it was obvious. To the accompaniment of incessant cheering, the procession made its way at walking pace down Dale Street, where what might be called the welcome of the middle classes was exchanged for that of the proletariat. It came from rough-working men and larrikins and beshawled women, children in arms and hand. It was a grim era for many in Manchester. Well, the working class, really. But this was a moment to cherish. City's manager, Tom Maley, said, Perhaps love of sport had something to do with the bringing together of so great a gathering, but love of Manchester had much more to do with it. A film of the final, centering on Meredith's goal, was shown across Manchester and Salford at the Regent Theatre in St James's Hall and elsewhere. Football's popularity soared in this great city, and very soon the balance of power between red and blue would shift, and Billy Meredith would ride the waves of success from Hyde Road to Bank Street. Billy Meredith would be a better player than Ryan Giggs. Let's race forward almost a year. There was certainly no suggestion of Meredith leaving City now, not like back in 1902. Relegated in that year, cup winners and title challenges in 1904, just two years later. And now City prepared to have another stab at the title in 1905. Meredith had been shocked by the sudden death of his parents soon after the cup victory. He hadn't had a chance to say goodbye, despite missing a City game in order to rush home to Turk to try and have one last chat. But despite that huge sadness, he was in his prime. Cup winner and now part owner of a sports shop in St. Peter's Square. Meredith was doing well for himself. And City did have a stab at the title, a proper one. On April the 1st, they were second. On the final day of the season, a month or so later, they travelled to Aston Villa. They were still in with a chance of the title. They needed to win against Villa and relied upon Newcastle not picking up all the points in their game and City would be champions for the very first time. It was a fascinating and thrilling end to a very good season. City, Everton and Newcastle were all fighting for the title and the way the fixtures worked meant that it really was a scrap for glory. City had to play Everton in April and beat them 2-0, propelling them into a position almost as favourites while Everton were almost ruled out from the race in that game and then the game against Villa came. And it was this game against Aston Villa which City lost 3-2. 
that opened the largest can of worms that English football has perhaps ever seen. A couple of punches thrown, a two-fingered salute thrown up, a small bribe, a couple of hard tackles, and a couple of throwaway comments. And suddenly the sport of football was brought into disrepute by the very biggest of scandals. It would take more than a year until the full impact became clear, but the real truth would never properly be confirmed. But with the help of our guests, it is the gist of things and how it revolved around the main protagonist. Because who else could be the centre of this but Billy Meredith? First, the match itself. The game as a whole was most unpleasant, wrote the Athletic News. Hines, Meredith, Turnbull and Livingston were all guilty of acts which footballers of their class should be first to discountenance. On one occasion, Turnbull struck Leek, who was without a doubt the merriest footballer of the day. And when the Villa halfback, quite jocularly and with a smiling face, asked what is that for, Turnbull struck him again. There may have been some provocation as other reports described Leek hitting Turnbull with a fistful of soil and a couple of sly slaps. And the Guardian wrote that It is not certain that Turnbull was more to blame than Leek. After the game, it seems Turnbull was bundled into Villa's dressing room and assaulted, while City's players, who were asked to leave by a side entrance but refused, were pelted with missiles when they left the ground. The truth, it seems, was that Leek had gathered up a handful of dirt and soil and hurled it at Sandy Turnbull. Turnbull had responded with a two-fingered gesture. Leek had in turn slapped him, and Turnbull hit back with a couple of punches. The immediate response to these events was relatively calm. The referee continued play and moved on from the brief fight. But newspapers from Manchester and Birmingham would disagree on the way that things then panned out. The Bolton football field gave perhaps a most neutral take. And here it is. They reported from an eyewitness that Turnbull was coming off the ground when someone, not a player, sprang out from the urinal and grabbed Turnbull, pulled him inside the villa dressing room and the door was shut behind him. I thought the whole thing was in fun until, within a few seconds, the door was opened and Turnbull was pitched out heavily, by whom I could not see. He was yelling with pain and fright and he had obviously been badly handled, for his right cheek was grazed with a black mark all dirt and he had a mark on his ribs where he had been kicked. Now, let's go back a bit again. Soon after the cup final, the Football Association had decided to investigate into Manchester City's success. How had this club from Manchester been in the second division in 1903 and challenged for the title in 1904. Investigator Josh Lewis found little of note in his investigation apart from a couple of dodgy transfers. City were fined 250 quid and their ground was closed for two games as punishment. Four directors were suspended. The FA were making an example. City had been paying too much in signing on fees to players. That was the crux of it. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Meredith's view on these matters was this. Of course, clubs are not being punished for breaking laws. They're punished for being found out. City had clearly recovered from the suspensions of their directors, who were very important in their growth, because they were still challenging for the title, having won the cup last season. City's players, with Turnbull badly bruised having been beaten up in the Villa dressing room, were taken out of Villa Park by a police escort to protect them from an angry Brummy crowd. The Football Association set up a special committee to investigate the matters in the Midlands. Players were interviewed, as were officials, and Northern newspapers became convinced that the Football Association was seeking something more. They smelt blood. They went fishing. As we've heard, City were not liked by the FA. The FA were, for the majority, a group of private school boys who wanted the game to remain as amateur as possible and disliked the big city industrial northern teams who had some money behind them. The initial result was that the FA suspended the referee, R.T. Johns. Furthermore, Sandy Turbo was also suspended for a month. The FA made not even a mention of Alec Leake, the Aston Villa captain who had thrown dirt at and slapped Turnbull and then played a role in dragging him to the dressing room post-match. The scandal often centres around City, but the real scandal here was the Football Association. They did City over and they wouldn't stop. Soon after, the quite incredible news that Billy Meredith had offered Alec Leake a £10 bribe before the match in order to let City win came out. Remember, City were competing for the title. And the football world was brought to a standstill. Billy Meredith, the great Billy Meredith, the city captain, the superstar, the cup winner, the Welsh wizard, the genius winger, had been suspended from all football from August the 4th, 1905 until April the 30th, 1906. Meredith insisted he was innocent. City is becoming too popular to suit some other clubs. He said, insinuating that Villa had some influence within the FA. That was true. From his wife's home in Chirk, he released this statement. I am entirely innocent and am suffering for others. Such an allegation as that of bribery is preposterous. I could never risk my reputation and future by such an action, and I repeat that I never made such an offer. It is totally unjustifiable and grossly unfair. This sort of thing will demoralise association football. Manchester has not many friends among association officials, and I doubt if the decision will be reversed or the suspension lessened if the whole case is reopened and inquired into. And Meredith slowly became more and more furious. He was appalled at the FA's decision, but perhaps even more so when Manchester City, the club he had helped to propel upwards so far that they were now one of the biggest in the country, they banned him as well. 
He insisted for many months that he was innocent and had not offered Alex Leak a bribe. Meredith would turn up to City's grounds on weekdays and demand his wage, demand he got greater support from the club he'd given a lot to. I found them shilly-shallying and putting me off until I got tired. If a trade union for footballers was a flower bed, the first seeds had been sown for Billy Meredith in the 1890s when he went on strike with his mining colleagues in Chirk. Then the deaths of Jimmy Ross and Di Jones in 1902 was another seed firmly embedded, and this was a new type of flower. Altogether, they were waiting to blossom into the players' union, and there was still more to come. It ended up that Meredith is a bit of a controversial figure. Later on, he, he says that he did try to bribe a player, but, but the stories are weird. He doesn't quite explain it how, he, how it should have been, and it doesn't seem to make sense, and he sort of causes trouble a little bit at City, and, and he, end, he gets banned, and he, he, he tries to demand his wages and all, all sorts of stuff. Meredith eventually admitted he had offered Leak a bribe. City reported him to the FA after he kept turning up at their ground they had to avoid the further wrath of the FA. And a frustrated Meredith eventually almost turned snitch. He changed his story and said he had offered Leak a bribe, but only at the behest of City Secretary Tom Maley and the rest of the City team. Maley denied these claims, but did admit that he had paid his players more than the maximum wage of £4. And thus a third stage of investigation into City erupted, and Meredith continued to be the most famous man in football. City and Meredith publicly fought. City backer Edward Holton was also owner of the Athletic News who wrote that Meredith had committed an offence which ought to have ended his football career and had been most lavishly and generously played by the club but had dragged everyone else into the same mess with no sense of gratitude. It was Meredith versus the establishment. He would, incredibly, basically come out on top. On the 31st of May 1906, after Meredith's initial ban had ended for bribery, though it had been extended, the FA Commission reported properly on the finances of Manchester City. Meredith had grasped them and up. Eventually, I won't bore you all the details, but the FA decided to investigate Sitter, and instead of this bribery accusation, instead of that being the, the main thrust of it, they're basically examining the books, and they discovered that City are paying above the maximum wage to, to some of these players, these first-team players. The bribery never gets proven. It's, it's gone. That, the bribery never, never is part of a charge, if you like. Um, but illegal payments are. And the commission reported that City had overpaid their players for years, snuck under the table payments to their stars, giving them bloated signing on fees and anything else they could really. How they didn't find this back in 1904 in their first investigation, well, who knows, maybe this evidence didn't actually exist. But it was said that Meredith had been earning £6, not £4 a week. The punishment was extraordinary. All the northern newspapers supported City, as did a lot of northern clubs. And they basically said that City were doing no worse than other clubs. But of course, the FA, which was strictly on the side of sort of amateur football, and they hated it, the fact that anyone was professional, and they completely destroyed Manchester City. You know, 17 players were banned. Um, the manager was banned, directors were banned, all sorts of people were banned. City's punishment was the suspension of 17 players, the managers, the directors, a £250 fine that the club paid and a £900 fine that the players paid. Three men appealed based on the fact that even after they had been paid, their total wages didn't total the maximum wage. Somehow, the FA rejected even this. A petition was also rejected, signed by more than 4,000 Mancunians. Meredith was at the centre of the storm and furious. He criticised the sheer hypocrisy within football. 
while the Football Association passed their highest resolution. He said other clubs were trying to get the villains to sign for them for even more money than they'd be illegally paid at Manchester City. The FA Commission had conducted a rape and pillage on Manchester City. Oh, absolutely it was. I don't know how the club survived, really, on the basis of that. And uh, Of course, it was, it was Meredith, basically, who grassed them up. They had marched through Hyde Road with bayonets and daggers, slashed at the walls, kicked over the furniture, ripped out the art, taken the statues, pulled away the copper, and left with anything of any value, including Billy Meredith. Meredith's career reached a standstill. His only job now was to complain in the newspapers. The fans, the people of Manchester, absolutely idolised him and still idolised him. So he got to work and got himself a job in Manchester. He was going to continue being a footballer, but this time for Manchester United. United had grown rapidly over the past few years. The arrival of John Henry Davies saw the club injected with a sum of money perhaps best compared to the current situation at Manchester City since 2008. The appointment of Ernest Magno as manager followed and then the signing of Charlie Roberts, a truly brilliant player who we covered in some serious detail in our last episode, a three-parter on Roberts. The fourth step towards United's first great team, bear in mind they had been in some serious financial trouble and on the brink of extinction as recently as 1902, was the signing of Billy Meredith. On December the 1st, 1907, United and City played each other in the first derby of the season. After the game, there was a fire sale for City's best players, the ones who had been suspended but would be free to play for another club within a month. They couldn't play for City. The truth was that Ernest Magnell snuck into the City offices while his rival managers were waiting outside to be invited in. He emerged, having completed transfers for Sandy Turnbull, Herbert Burgess, Billy Meredith and Jimmy Bannister, City's four best players. Meredith, though, was signed before the others, a few months before. It has been written far too many times that Meredith was signed alongside the others, and I don't think that's true. Here's what I think happened, based off my research and that done by Dr Gary James, John Harding, Mark Metcalf and many others. Even before the City punishment was announced, Meredith began to arrange his own transfer. He was unhappy with how he'd been treated by City, but he liked living in Manchester. He had business there, friends there, and he was adored by the public. City and United played within a mile or so of each other, and the two sets of players were good friends. Meredith played in Harry Stafford's testimonial, for example, back in 1902. Now, Stafford himself had been banned for mismanaging the books at Manchester United. That ban had been back in 1903. He now managed the Imperial Hotel, which became a hub of footballing activities. It was once said that a good football administrator could sign an entire team on May Day at Harry Stafford's place. Meredith was teetotal, but it seems likely he would have gone to talk to Harry at the Imperial. He would have ranted a little, let off some steam and chatted with Harry and the other customers. Harry, very much a Manchester United man, would have undoubtedly advised him to become a Red. And it's likely that together they concocted a plan to get them both some cash while sorting out Billy's problems. And Meredith would have kept fit and practised his skills. He used to spend hours and hours by himself doing individual drills, dribbling round empty bottles placed every few yards down the pitch. Or he would get his son-in-law in later years, later than this, to place a handkerchief in the middle of the penalty area and then he would cross it so it would land perfectly on the handkerchief. He would get it there every time, one of Meredith's relatives said. In May of 1906, both Meredith and Sandy Turbull had not been signed on by Manchester City yet. That didn't mean they could just join another club, but it did mean they didn't have a contract for the next season. Turnbull was eventually signed on. Meredith was not. 
The city directors had delayed and delayed and were worried about the FA Commission. They knew they could be judged more harshly if Meredith was seen to be signing on again. These were the directors who were about to be banned for life come the end of May. They had every right to be concerned. So in May, Meredith was placed on the transfer list by City's directors. The fans were shocked and dismayed, but very quickly, Manchester United stepped in. By the 17th of May, some regional newspapers carried a tiny segment that said, Meredith, the Welsh international, has signed on for Manchester United. The transfer fee is £500. And by May the 21st, the Athletic News carried a small headline in a small middle column of page five of the newspaper. Meredith's migration. Now this is an odd place to carry what now seems like such a huge story, but no one was really sure. The paper wrote, It has been said that Meredith has been signed by United without the consultation with the city officials. So United had tapped him up, agreed personal terms and just needed to agree a transfer fee. But with Meredith on the transfer list, there wasn't much City could do at this point. It was just about how much the fee was. And this is where Meredith's genius came into play. He thought he should get as much money as he could. His transfer fee had been agreed at £500, but simultaneously City owed Billy Meredith a benefits match where he would be guaranteed a similar fee. And being the principled man that he was, Meredith didn't want City to benefit from his sale since they had not paid a fee to Northwich Victoria back in the 1890s. This is a club put a transfer of £600 on my head and United were prepared to pay it, but I refused to let them pay her half penny. I had cost no fee and I was determined that I would have no fee placed on my head. I was prepared to fight the matter. The City Club were not. And so Meredith agreed with City that he would waive the benefit match that they owed him if he could leave for free. And with Manchester United, he agreed that they would not have to pay a transfer fee to City, but they would have to pay him the equivalent. I was given a free transfer and as a result I got £500 from a gentleman to sign for Manchester United and he also paid the £100 fine to the FA. Um, I mean, that's a funny story, yeah, funny story in itself because it was written to his contract, that that uh, testimonial. Obviously City couldn't afford to pay it. They, they preferred the transfer fee. So it all, on the surface it all sounded very like Meredith was doing him a favour by agreeing to waive the transfer fee and his benefit money, testimonial money. But um, in fact, yeah, he took that Six hundred pound under the table from I assume it was John Henry Davis, which he kept five hundred and then a hundred pounds went to pay his FA fine. And with that, Billy Meredith was a red. Given the whole reason he left City was because of an investigation into the club's finances, it is absolutely extraordinary, berserk even, that Meredith's transfer to United was not investigated. It was so obviously full of underhand tactics, but the FA didn't care. They had set their sights on City, on making an example of them, and Meredith was old news, and the Welsh wizard was a beneficiary. That's it for part one of United Three Times' documentary on the great Billy Meredith. His stardom is so great and his story so packed full of information that to truly tell the whole life of Billy Meredith, I need 100 hours, not one or two, 200,000 words, not 20,000. And so, some detail has undoubtedly been left out. Thank you to my guests Gary James, Colin Savage, Mark Metcalf and Gwyn Jenkins and Paddy Barkley. Coming up next on United Through Time is part two as we delve into Billy's involvement in the Players' Union, the impact of his move to Manchester United in short, two league titles, an FA Cup and a tour to Europe, his exploits during the World War, a return to Manchester City and his silver years at High Road, an entrance into punditry, a flourish of coaching and scouting, starting a football club, getting involved with Moojack, living through another World War and chatting to the Busby Babes. Bye for now.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 